All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to part five of uh, Battles for the Soul of Israel. Um, if you have not been with us for the previous four, they're all available on podcasts or actually on Facebook if you want to watch the video with all the videos attached. So it's been a, a great series that I've enjoyed thoroughly, and that's why I'm continuing to do them. Um, we've got th- at least three more uh, classes that we'll be doing. We'll see how it goes from there. But the class we're dealing with this evening is going to be negotiating with terrorists. Um, most recently, the, the question of Gilad Shalit. But this is not definitely not the, the first. This is something that has been going on from uh, almost from the establishment of the state. And it's not unique to Israel, because every country at some point or another has the, uh, the problem of having to deal with how do, we, how do we negotiate with terrorists when we've got, you know, they've got something we want. And usually things that we want are civilians. That uh, or not necessarily civilians, but our our citizens, and that's going to be the case, you know, time and time again with Israel, because Israel had, let's say, if we look at Gilad Shalit, we have a number of soldiers that have been taken captive, and the question of do we negotiate with terrorists? Do we um, are we prepared to engage with them in this conversation? Um, then we have questions of uh, non non combatants, so terrorists um, uh, hijacking airlines, which we've seen through uh, Entebbe being the most notable of the cases. Then we have cases where um, Israeli, uh, um, Israeli Olympians in Munich. We have uh, other cases of Israeli citizens. There was a case of uh, Tannenbaum, um, this had been about 2002, 2001, who was uh, taken captive overseas and then held by Hezbollah. So time again, we have these situations of, of terrorists and, and the Israeli position of what are we going to do to get our citizens back? <clears throat> and albeit that if you look at to every other society, you know, there, there's always going to be a, a combination of, of how, do we nego- how do we, you know, negotiate this particular process? Do we say, um, yeah, we have, to, we have to get our people back at all costs? Or do we say, no, we're not prepared to negotiate with terrorists? Now, officially, most countries' policies are we don't negotiate with terrorists. But we see with Israel, that's, that's not entirely true. Because as you saw with Gilad Shalit, over a thousand um, terrorists were released from jail in order to get Gilad Shalit back. And we've seen that again in, in a number of other cases. I think the one before that would have been around 2003, 2004, where we had um, um, a number of soldiers given up for the bodies. Not even was Tannenbaum, the, the businessman. Um, and a number of uh, of corpses of soldiers that had died in Lebanon that were being returned, and this is uh, still ongoing. There's um, there's uh, Hadar Golden in 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 Gaza who's been held; his body's been held by Hamas and the like. So this is a question. So I'm going to show a couple of videos. Um, unfortunately, none of this is going to be archival footage as 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 good as in previous uh, weeks, but uh, hopefully will be good nonetheless. All right, let's get here. Palestinian militant group Hamas could face a legal challenge. Israel has agreed to free more than a thousand Palestinian prisoners in return for the release of the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit, who was captured by Hamas five years ago. The deal has been widely welcomed, but some Israelis who've lost relatives in suicide attacks say they feel betrayed, and they're considering an appeal to Israel's Supreme Court. Middle East correspondent Ann Barker reports. Arnold Roth lost his daughter Malki in a suicide bombing 10 years ago. The 15-year-old was killed in an attack on a pizza restaurant in central Jerusalem. The young man in question, who is now of course dead, uh, brought 
a bomb inside a guitar case so that everyone who would have looked at him, including my daughter who was a musician, would have thought, here is a man who knows music. Fifteen people were killed that day at the Sparrow restaurant. 130 were wounded. The bomber might be dead, but Arnold Roth has had some comfort knowing the woman who helped mastermind the attack, Ahlam Tamimi, was jailed for life. But now she's likely to walk free within days. It's devastating. Uh, the person that you're referring to is a woman who's now 31 years old. She's got a life that's being handed back to her as a result of this transaction. In total, 1,000 men and 27 women prisoners are slated for release, even though hundreds of them are militants serving life sentences for murder or terror attacks. Even some Israeli cabinet ministers voted against the deal, warning it'll send hundreds of hardcore terrorists back onto the streets. And for Arnold Roth, it's just too high a price. Many hundreds of convicted murderers are going to be released for no other reason than that the government of Israel saw no alternative. Uh, obviously everyone in this country is delighted if this is going to produce a healthy and well Gilad Shalit. But that's not the whole deal. And the parts of the deal that involve allowing terrorists back on the streets is a recipe for a terrible outcome. One of those tipped to be freed is Ahlan Tamimi, the young woman who drove the bomber to Jerusalem's Sparrow restaurant. She was sentenced to more than 1,500 years in jail, the equivalent of 16 life terms, and she's never expressed remorse. I support what she did, and any Palestinian would support her, because they're the enemy, our occupiers, and they've killed our children. Ahlam Tamimi's own family believes she deserves to be freed. I understand the Israelis' anger, but they have to understand our anger too. Alam killed 15 people, but the Israelis have killed thousands of us. Once the names of the prisoners slated for release are made public by Sunday, Israel's Supreme Court will grant 48 hours for any Israeli to challenge the prisoner exchange. Arnold Roth isn't yet sure whether he'll lodge an appeal. The first 450 prisoners and Gilad Shalit are expected to be freed within a week. Anne Barker, Late Line. That's... In Israel, two sides do a deal swapping scores of Palestinian prisoners for one Israeli, Sergeant Gilad they Shalit. Some 1,000 Palestinian uh, prisoners are due to be released. Shalit has been held by Hamas militants for five years. But the swap to start Tuesday should not go on, say these relatives of Israelis killed in Palestinian attacks. They hope judges halt the exchange. This member of the Knesset says, I am very worried for the people of Israel because the message is that Jewish blood is shed in vain. The people of Israel are defeated because of one soldier. In Gaza, a call for more prisoners to go free, with posters of one leader of the Fatah movement who is not on the list. And in this corner of Israel, preparations for the homecoming of Sergeant Shalit. This activist says, I am more than happy to say that tomorrow I hope Gilad will enter through the door of his home. It's a chilling thought that makes me happy. Residents here want their sergeant home, then life to return to normal in their quiet village. Lee Powell, the Associated Press. Alright, so, good to be there. Alright, so hopefully, um, just let me see where my little screen is, so I can... 
Okay, so hopefully that sort of painted a little bit of the picture and uh, we are aware of it now. Um, it's 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 not so clear from the video. So so a couple of those members of Knesset you would have seen, he's uh, currently, uh, his surname's Gvir, he's uh, one of the right-wing members of Knesset at the moment. And uh, this is a topic which is really not a left-right topic, albeit that uh, in, in many areas of Israeli politics, like all other politics around the world, that you can divide up a person's position based on whether, they, whether they're left-wing or right-winger. But in this particular area, you've got very strong opinions on both sides of the fence because we all want um, our soldiers back or our people back. But the question is, what is the price that we're going to be prepared to pay for it? And we all agree that there's a price that's too expensive. And then we all agree that there's a pass that we're prepared to negotiate on. And the question is really comes to where is that point where we say that this is an acceptable. So we all see now, Ingilat Shalit, if I'm not mistaken, got married a week ago. And there's great celebration in Israel that this was a soldier, to best of my knowledge, who has held the longest period of time in captivity, um, in Palestinian captivity that came out. And there's great rejoicing for that. And I don't think anyone would begrudge them. But everyone says, was the price worth it? A thousand and I suppose there are two elements. One is the fact that the people who are being released are people who have blood on their hands, or at least many of them who, if they don't have blood, they're tempted to have blood on their hands. And these are people who tried to kill. And that's the one thing is that we are sort of, it's as if they, what they did was insignificant. That's what the, um, the two news clips gave. But then there's the other one, which is a much more pragmatic argument, was, hold on a second, these people are going to commit atrocities again. It's not a matter that we are releasing a thousand pr prisoners. What, they, they're not going to do chuva in jail. The first thing they're going to do when they get out of jail is to go back to the courts. Or at least there's a significant um, concern and risk that they may go back to the courts. And when they go back to the courts, so how many, so we've, we've re gotten Gilad Shalit back. And then if 10% if of the people released commit an atrocity and only, let's say if 1% of them kill another Jew. So you've already lost from a mathematical point of view, you're going to be 10 dead Jews for the saving of one. So uh, math, it doesn't make sense. How on earth can we release these people? God? And now then we say, we've got to do everything to get our soldiers back and we need to... And the, so these are the arguments that are going to uh, manifest their way. The reality is, is that, to the best of my knowledge, the state of Israel did not ask what the rabbis think. And so this is, albeit that I'm going to bring it from a from halachic point of view, is where do we uh, where do we stand on this particular issue? And it's uh, it's going to be quite a fascinating discussion. But that being said, is um, I'm not sure the state of Israel really cares. Um, I had a I'm not sure if I shared this with you, but I had an interesting meeting um, about a month or so ago during the heart of the uh, Gaza Israel conflict with a, a local imam who was. Uh, putting a lot of quite anti and very negative uh, anti-Israel stuff on the internet. I had a conversation with him, and um, one of the things that he didn't really appreciate, he says, you know, the state of Israel is the Jewish state run by Jewish law. And I said to him, no, it's not. He says, what do you mean? He says, the Jewish state. So I said, you're right, it is the Jewish state, but I understand that the state of Israel is not run according to Torah. The, the, the Prime Minister and the Knesset do not, they don't do things in the name of Torah. Because he wanted to compare, is in Israel like ISIS? I said, ISIS, you might think ISIS are wrong, but ISIS believe they're doing what they're doing in the name of Islam. You can say they're wrong, but that's what they claim to do. The State of Israel doesn't claim to do anything in the name of Torah. 
They're not doing it. Whatever decisions Israel make, it's not because they believe this is what the Torah wants us them to do. They do it because they're making political decisions. Whether those political decisions are consistent with Torah or not, from the state of Israel's point of view, is really irrelevant. And the only time that they will be consistent with Torah law is either, one, they just coincidentally, that the political agenda and halacha have to be coincide. Alternatively, is because the... The, the, the orthodox lobbies in Israel are so strong that they will not vote for something unless it's compliant with halacha. But other than that, from the state of Israel's point of view, it's a secular government, doesn't it? So, albeit that we're going to be sharing a lot of uh, halachic ideas over here, we, we need to appreciate that, um, that from, a, from a state of Israel point of view, these are purely academic and not uh, practical. All right, so we're going to be dealing with now. I hope everyone can see the, shkri, the sheet in front of them. And this, <coughs> we're going to go through a number of different points of view from uh, the Lach. So you can see that I will just quickly put, if you would like to, um, if you would like to uh, follow it yourself, I'm just going to put it in the chat. Why can I not get the chat? Excuse me for a sec. In the chat. So if you'd like to follow it by yourself, you can follow it in the chat. Otherwise, I'm just going to share the screen. Okay. So, unfortunately, throughout Jewish history, the idea of, um, of uh, ransoming captives is not something new. It is something that we really see in the Mishnah. So we're talking around the year 200. This is, we're already dealing with this concept. And it says as follows. So, we need to uh, redeem captives. Why were captives taken in the ancient world? So they were not taken... Uh, as bargaining chips to release uh, prisoners. That is not the rationale in the ancient world. The reality is for financial benefit. Something that this, we hear, this the only place I, I know that this still goes on regularly is in South America. But the idea is that you, you kidnap someone and then you, you ransom them for money and you want to do it for money. So, <coughs> so is there a limit to how much money can be done? So the Gomorrah comes and says, excuse me, the Mishnah comes and says, they're not allowed to be redeemed for more than the actual value. Why? Mipnei tikon olam. Because of tikon olam. So everyone knows tikon olam in the way that is, oh, we have to make the world a better place. But that is not the way it is used in the Talmud. So the way the Gomorrah explains as follows. My mipnei tikon olam. What, what exactly does it mean tikon olam? So the Gomorrah gives two answers. Mishum tziburu. says it's putting too much pressure on the community. Because if we're going to have this idea that that you, can, uh, that you can extort the community for funds, at some point the community is going to run out of money. And a community runs out of money is not good for anybody. So on the one hand, <coughs> yeah, it's all well and good that we want to do the best as we can in order to make sure that people uh, should be able to redeem from captive. But if, if the, the, the extortionists, the, the, the kidnappers, are expecting too much money, so then it's just not feasible that we can allow this thing to go on and we have to stop. That's the first reason given by the Gemara. The second one says... Says maybe it's another reason is that if it becomes so lucrative to kidnap Jews, so you know what's going to do? It's going to it's going to uh, going to be more Jews that are going to be kidnapped. So what we, the reason you can't uh, redeem someone for more than their value for an exorbitant amount is because now it's going to incentivize the industry. All of a sudden, there's going to become a kidnapping industry that is so lucrative because of this. So the government gives two potential, either because the community cannot sustain such a level of, uh, of expense, 
and it will bankrupt the community. Or it's if if we pay too much, what's going to happen is people are not going to feel safe anymore because it's going to be a good business. So which is it? Is it those? So the Gemara doesn't answer. It, it gives a few examples here, and it gives an example of Levi Baldaga redeemed his daughter for thirteen thousand gold dinners. So those. So you see. So the Gemara comes and says, "What so so he did it with his own money." So he could redeem his own money. So he says, maybe he wasn't doing it with the approval of the, of, of the rabbis. Maybe he did his, uh, you know, he wanted to redeem his own daughter. Okay, so one way or another is, um, there are a few exceptions we're going to talk, but generally speaking, there apparently is a roof to how much we can spend on ransoming captives. That to appreciate the importance of ransom captives, this is now uh, the Rambam, Maimonides, and in codifying Jewish law, he says as follows. Pidyon Shvuim, redeeming captives, is more important than giving tzedakah. There's no act of charity more meritorious than ransoming captives. So it is that severe that therefore money collected for any worthy purpose whatsoever may be used as ransom. Even if originally it was collected for erection of a synagogue, etc., etc. Meaning, if there's any money of, of, of pooled resources that we can use to towards ransoming captives, so halachically we are obligated to do so. Doesn't matter what that money is. Number one priority. So it's not clear exactly why, because we will see some caveats in that thing. And he continues. This is still the Rambam. He says, even though that's the case, captives are not to be ransomed at an unreasonable cost. And why? For the safety of society. Otherwise, the enemy will exert every effort to capture victims. But any man may ransom himself at any price. Also, a scholar may be ransomed at a greater price, or even a student who gives promising become a scholar. So we'll come to we'll come to explain exactly what those um, exceptions are. But what the Rambam is saying is that first and foremost, our concern of ransoming captives for too much money is the fact that it's going to create the industry. That's our concern. But there are exceptions. There are people that you can. Number one, you can redeem yourself because with your own money, you can do whatever you want to do with your own money. What are you going to tell a person? So if I've got, I've got a ton of money and in order to redeem myself, I have to give up my money. Who's not going to do that? So that's permissible. Um, two is a, a Torah scholar, someone who is of significant uh, value to the community, is a leader within the community. And, and we're no, we know historically a number of uh, scholars that have been redeemed for exorbitant amounts of money. So that would be another one. And, um, and even someone who's just a potential scholar, which we'll see a Talmudic statement come and talk about this. So there are exceptions to the rule. But by and large, the rule seems to be, as the Ramam says, is that it is very clear that one cannot uh, spend too much money. Now we're going to go through a number of exceptions. So number one, we said you can redeem yourself. So it says not only can you redeem yourself, but you can redeem your family. So yourself, your wife. Why? Because with the, when it says that you're redeeming yourself, so it is, you're considered that it is part of your extended, uh, your, your extension of yourself. So there's a Talmudic statement that we use on, on Hanukkah, Ishtok Gufor, that a man and his wife are like one body. So redeeming himself, redeeming his wife, the same thing. So that's one exception. We're going to come back to halachically explain this. Number two, which is the Rambam quoted, is a Talmud Chacham, is a scholar. And this is a statement that we learn out of the Gemara and Gittin. It says as follows. Um, there was an incident in Rome when Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah went to the great city. They said to him there was a child in prison with beautiful eyes, a trace appearance, and a curly hair. And he basically, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah goes and he che- checks the kid. And the kid is, 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 a, is a blossoming uh, um, 
it's called an Iloi in English, in Hebrew. It's a, a prodigy, a, pro, a prodigy. Yeah, that's it. It's a child prodigy. He's going to be great. So he says, I will not move from here until I ransom him for whatever sum of money they set for him. And they didn't do so until the exceptional sum of money was raised. So we see here in the Talmud itself brings this exception. This is one that the Rambam quoted. A third exception is if there's a threat to the life of the kidnapped. Now, the general rule for kidnappers is kidnappers don't want to kill the person they've kidnapped. And the reason they don't want it is because they want, ultimately, they're looking for the money. And so a dead captive is not worth as much as a live captive. So if the intent is to just keep them alive in order to uh, ransom them, so then there's a, there's a limit. But if the intent is to kill them, so then things are different because that is not a pure financial. And our concerns are very different because if people are going to kidnap people in order to kill them, so we are not concerned that this is going to set a trend. We might be concerned that it's going to um, bankrupt us. But even then, if they're going to kill them, it's not. So if this is, so this is a toss for comes says, if for, for whatever sum of money is set and free, he was legally out to do this. Because where there's threat to life, redeem captives for more than their value. So when there's a fear that someone's going to die, so then that is, uh, that is permissible. Okay. Um, all right. So I just want to end that part of the show for now. So we, we see that there are a couple of exceptions to the cases of uh, where the Torah brings in is that, okay, so you can save stuff, you can use your own money, even though there are exceptions, you can use your own money. Or if it's uh, someone who's going to be a scholar and the like, you can use it. Or it's a part of your broader family. Like, or we are scared that they're going to be killed, so that something like that is permissible. Now, the question that we have to deal with is that this is the Talmud. And the Talmud is writing for a very specific time. Can we take those principles that are written in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, and say, let's apply them to the modern state of Israel. And the reality is we can't. It's like a completely different situation. Because in the Talmud, as we said, the goal, by and large, the goal was to extort money from the, from the, the, the people they're ransoming. That was the, the goal. They didn't care who was kidnapped, per se, other than as much how much money can I get for it. What the case that we're dealing with today is we have people who really want to kill all of us. That's their goal. Their goal is to kill all the Jews or to at least destroy the state of Israel. That is the goal of the kidnappers. And what do they want to do? They don't want money for money's sake. They want to finance their either finance or bring um, prestige or bring um, soldiers into the movement to allow them to achieve their ultimate goal, which is the destruction of the state of Israel. That is what the terrorist goal is. So when Hamas takes a soldier, their goal isn't, you know, if they're using him as a, as a bargain, or her as, as a bargaining chip, the goal isn't to, to take money so they can go on cruises and drive nice cars. That's not what they're doing. Their goal is ultimately part of their battle against the state of Israel. So taking captives is very much part of the goal because captives, uh, to, to capture an, an Israeli soldier is gold because what you can negotiate with that Israeli soldier is unbelievable so it's not a matter that we are we concerned that if we negotiate with terrorists that they're going to want to kidnap more Israelis they want to kidnap Israelis the only reasons that they don't kidnap Israelis more is because they, they, they are thwarted but ultimately that that is the concern so so the idea that you know <coughs> that we are concerned that they might um they might, uh, this might, but if we, if we negotiate with terrorists, they're going to in, 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 encourage 
um, kidnappings doesn't seem to be relevant anymore. On the flip side is that, is their life at risk? Absolutely, their life's at risk. The life is always at risk. If we're going to negotiate with terrorists every time someone's life's at risk. So what does that do to the whole uh, military system? And if we talk for a second that we are, are, are focusing particularly and specifically on the idea that we're talking about soldiers and try to, and Gilad Shalit was a soldier and, and most of the, the captives that we are trying to redeem are soldiers. So if every time a soldier's captives, we drop everything to try to get the soldiers back. So what does that do to our military efforts? So surely our goal in the, in the army is to defeat the enemy, not to get our people back. And as much as we want to get our people back and no man left behind is well and good, but no man left behind, not if it's going to jeopardize the whole war effort. And so this, this question is one that is now going to, now we're going to ask is how different is the Talmudic situation to the modern situation as we have it? Now, just give me two secs because I just want to, um, I'm not enjoying working off the, um, uh, off the, if, there we go. So okay, now we're going to try again. All right. All right. So we're going to now go through a number of these sources that we saw, uh, but now we're going to deal with it from more of a modern context. All right. So we're going to hear arguments in both directions, and these are going to be quite profound. So for, first, Rav Shaul Yisraeli was Rav in Tel Aviv. He's one of the, the great rabbis of Israel. I think he passed away really in the last 20, 30 years. So this is prior to... Um, uh, prior to uh, Gilad Shalit, but this, as I said, this is something that we've been dealing with for a long time. So he says as follows: Kevan she elu chayelenu yatsu lemelcham b'shlichot hamidinot v'tmatama. Says when soldiers go out to the war, who they go? They're going out for us. They're our soldiers. Lahaganat ha'am hayoshev b'tzion to guard the people who dwell in Zion. Harei kaimet vo meret hitchayvud bilti ktuva. So he says there is an absolute obligation on us. Even though it's not written, but it is completely self-understood. That the government will do everything in its power to be able to redeem people if they take, take, are given taken captive. Every soldier that goes out to war knows that his government's got his back. Just as the government has every obligation to protect their soldiers in the case that they get injured. So if they get injured on the battlefield, we don't say just leave them there. We send medics, we bring them back, we try to help them. And to worry about their families. An event, so the families get benefits and get taken care of in the event that they their relatives um, are injured or killed in war. So if that is case, so obviously it's the case. So if we, if I'm obligated as an individual, not obligated, I, it is permissible for me as an individual to spend all my money to redeem myself or my wife. So why is that a soldier any different? A soldier is part of us. It's part of our community. So Rav Shul Israeli wants to say it is exactly the same as at Samuri times. But the soldier is not a random citizen. The soldier in particular, and this would be a big, what we call it, a big difference with an average citizen somewhere or someone who just fell on the wrong side of the tracks and got taken captives. 
as opposed to a soldier who is going that this, when a person goes in the army, I know that when I, you know, when I take my oath to serve the state of Israel, that I will, I'm prepared to die for the state of Israel, but I know Israel will do everything in its power to ensure that I don't. And since the government's, uh, let's say, the government's responsibility to the soldiers is that, this, that they will do everything in their power to make sure that they survive and they come back. It's as if they're redeeming themselves. It's as if the government redeemed themselves. And so it has the same status of everyone. And therefore there is no... Therefore, in this case, there is no hagbalat. Um, uh, there's no budget. There's no. Uh, there's no limit to the amount that a person can spend in order to redeem um, captives. Says Rav Shaul Yisraeli, a very prominent voice, and if I'm not mistaken, that was also the opinion of Rav Shlomo Gorin, who was the chief rabbi of Israel and the chief rabbi of the Israeli army. That since these boys, men and women, go out to battle on our behalf. Our part is that we will do everything that if they fall in captivity, we will do everything in our power to bring them back. And therefore, there's no such thing as a cost too high. That's argument number one. All right. Now, argument number two. So one of the things that happens in, in areas of uh, where we've got terrible um, danger to the lives of our, of our chayalim. So option one is negotiate with terrorists, which is something that generally speaking we don't want to do. So what happens is, and the, and the state of Israel does this regularly, is we want to go out and get our sold, go get them ourselves. And the only time that Israel ever entertains the idea of negotiating is when we don't have that option. So for example, when Entebbe happened, so initially Entebbe, you know, the terrorists, the Black September, they said, you know, give, we want you to release X amount of, of, of our fighters in, in exchange for uh, the plane load of civilians. And Israel said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Um, Munich Olympics, something similar. And there were a number of other cases where Israel's first, first port of call is we want to send in troops again. So there was a tragic case in the, in the 90s of Nachshan Wachsman, who was, uh, was very similar to the, to the case of the three boys a few years ago. He was hitchhiking, was picked up by someone and eventually held hostage. And Israel sent in um, troopers, to, they found out where he was and they went to, um, to try to rescue him and unfortunately he was killed by the, by the terrorists during the rescue effort. So, um, so that is a terrible, um, a, terrible, a terrible story, but that is Israel's first point. So are you allowed to risk your life? So let's, before we start negotiating, are we allowed to risk our lives in order to save? So there's someone, so this Nachshon Wachsman, so it's a singular soldier in captivity. Now we're going to send 10, 20 uh, other soldiers to try to rescue them. Are we allowed to do such a thing? So you're risking more lives in order to save, uh, save one person. So we're going to risk 50. This is a... For those who saw Saving Private Ryan, exactly that thing. We're going to send in a whole uh, a platoon of soldiers to go save one. Are you allowed to do such a thing? So let's um, carry on with what he says. So this is again Rav Shoy Israeli. So it says, So there's a general rule in law that it is halachically permissible to endanger your own life to save another person's life. You're not obligated to do so. That is permissible. 
So for example, if you have two healthy kidneys and you know someone who's going to die if they don't get a kidney, are you allowed to donate a kidney to them, even though it might put you in some potential danger? So luckily it's permissible. If you see someone drowning and you're a strong swimmer, and even though there's a chance that you too may drown, but if you're a strong swimmer, you're allowed to do it. And so we see like uh, lifeguards, every time they jump into the water, there's a risk to them. Doctors on the front line in COVID, there's a risk to them as well. So are you allowed to do that? So we, halakhi, we find that it is permissible. So it says regarding the army. Similarly, and this is regarding Entebbe, it was permissible for them to send this whole, you know, all these soldiers to go try rescue them. <clears throat> so it says what they did is they entered into negotiations with the terrorists. So even though there's a, a risk, terrible risk to death. Um, so if as an individual I'm allowed to risk my life in order to save somebody, so as a community, the government has got to view the same, that the government is allowed to do what is ever necessary in order to save the lives of people. The government can also endanger itself, so to speak, in order to save life. Now to expand a little, so what happens if we release these terrorists? Maybe they will endanger other people. These thousand terrorists that release, maybe they will kill more people. Yes, but that maybe is what we call a suffolk. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. How many people have died in, since Gilad Shalit directly as a result of those terrorists? So we don't know. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But the reality is, is that suffolk. Gilad Shalit is definitely in danger. These people might be in danger. And you can definitely uh, in, in, incur a suffolk, a potential danger for life, just as we can do the other time. We don't look at the maths. The argument of the maths, either they've got blood in their hands. Blood in their hands is, is not something that we look at. Um, the concept of revenge and retribution is something that we are going to deal with, if I'm not mistaken, this next week's class about it uh, of Eichmann and like, and the concept of revenge. So that is not something that we generally speak to. We talk about what is happening in the present, what's going to happen in the future. And just as an individually, I'm, I'm permissible to risk my life to save others. The state itself can risk itself to save others. And that is why it is permissible to do so. So we've seen two arguments. Number one, both from Rosh Israeli, it is permissible to, there's no, there's no limit on the amount that it will cost in order to save, uh, to save uh, somebody, a soldier specifically. And number two, you can endanger and this is not even for soldiers, for anyone, it is permissible to, um, to, uh, it is permissible to um, endanger yourself or to endanger parts of the country or soldiers in order to save others. Okay, now, <coughs> number four over here, and this is the Tosfot in Gitin, we quoted a little bit earlier, and this is talking about that uh, young Torah scholar in Rome that was saved. But one of the things he says over here, it says, Nami, Peshat Choban Habayet, Shloshach Lo Delo is that we're living in a time now. We don't have to worry. In the post-temple times, people kidnap Jews all the time. There's, you don't need to incentivize it anymore. There's always a value to it. So I'll bet that the Tosfut is talking about one particular case. But even if we were to talk in, in modern days, as we said earlier, is that we have no fear of incentivizing that terrorism pays. That isn't a halachic concern anymore because terrorism is... Um, you know, terrorism's terrorism, and they're going to try to do terrorism whether it works or not. 
And uh, the only thing that might stop it is preemptive measures. But whether we negotiate with them, we don't negotiate with them, it's not going to stop them trying to do terrorism. That's, that's the argument. So Tosfot, I think there's a lot of truth. Okay, so those are the arguments that you said that seem to say that you can negotiate. And, and for, so Rav Shah Yisraeli is very clear that for, for soldiers you can do whatever you need to do. In Tebi, do whatever you need to do for Gilad Shalit. But now we're going to hear an argument that is going to be the complete opposite of that argument. And this is based on the Rambam. We're going to see it from a number of different sources. But this is based on the Rambam. It says as follows. And this is in the Rambam, the Law of Kings, which is where all the uh, laws of warfare and the like come. And he says as follows. When a person goes out to war, he should rely on uh, the hope of Israel. Ay Hashem. And he said, everything now is up to Hashem. I place everything in the palms of Hashem. He shouldn't be fearful or scared. And he should not be concerned of his wife or his children. He should remove all of their th- thinking about his home life away. And you should think of nothing other than the war. <coughs> anyone who does that and he thinks about other matters regarding it, and anyone who starts thinking about something that is unrelated, sorry, that is unrelated to the war, transgresses a negative prohibition. So the Rambam is going to have a completely different thing. He says, what is war? So war, by its very nature, is I'm going out to, to defend, or attack, as well, but to defend my, my country. When I do so, I do so forfeiting my right as an individual. The laws of war and the laws of, of civilian life are completely different. In fact, there are two legal systems. You have military law, martial law, and, 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 and civilian law. The things that happen in wartime are completely different to things that happen in civilian times. They, they are completely different systems. And as an individual, things that I would never in a million years allowed to be doing on the street, I can do in war. So whereas murdering someone is a, is a complete prohibition and is illegal and you go to jail for it. But on the battlefield, it's a mitzvah to, to kill the bad guys. That's, that's how these things work. Is that everything that works, you know, you have to eat kosher. You're not allowed to eat non-kosher. But on the battlefield, there's no, there's no laws of kashrut. And at home, you have to keep Shabbat. You're not allowed to machal Shabbat. On, on the battlefield, there's no such thing as Shabbat. So the, the whole concept of, of war is very, very different. You forfeit your right as an individual. And when you forfeit your rights as individuals, if you think of anything that is personal, when you start thinking about your wife, your children, your life, so you, 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 you give away from the war effort. So war in general, and, and, these, and the Jewish soldier in particular, has to have a completely different mindset about what his, what his goals are. So listen to this f- fant- phenomenal story, I personally think. So this is a story... I've quoted here at length. My apologies that this is uh, in, in Hebrew, but I will promise you I'll translate. So this is from a book called Ikvat Tzomber of Herschel Shechter. He's, he's the Rosh Shiva in YU, and it's a little bit lengthy, but, but it's, it's definitely worthwhile. Well, and, he, and the question is, Medinat Yisrael ka'eti b'matzav shemulchamah. He says, the state of Israel is, is perpetually in a state of war. 
So he says, V'nirad avda ain shama chayilim aravim yordim patotachim ba'avironim v'azrukim patsatsot. So he even says, even though on a daily basis we don't have Arab tanks and, and cannons and planes um, shooting at us. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, the state of Israel has to permanently be considered in a state of war. So in the, in the end of summer, Tavshim Lamed, so that's 30, that's 52 years ago. So you work out 52 years ago, in the 1950s. So it says, at a time where theoretically where there was peace, but the terrorists came and hijacked two planes. Two planes that were leaving from Eretz Israel to go to America were hijacked by terrorists. This is during quote unquote peaceful times. And took them to Jordan. And they threatened to kill everyone. So I don't know if people remember this. Eventually they blew up the planes on the tarmac. So one of the, those people that were taken captive on the plains was Rav Yitzchak Hutna. Rav Yitzchak Hutna was a Rosh Yeshiva of, Rav Chaim, of Chaim Berlin, which is a very prominent Yeshiva in America. And he was one of the Godolim. He was one of the great rabbis of the world at the time. And he was part of those uh, captives. So he says, So some of his wealthy balabatim. So they said, So they, they went. So all these wealthy Jewish businessmen in New York went and raised money and went to the Foreign Ministry of America. That they wanted to, to, to ransom Rav Hutna from the terrorists. This is in the 19... We're dealing with 1950, 1970, we're dealing with. So, so once you go redeem So this became the question, hold on a second, I'm going to paraphrase here. So he says, hold, isn't this the case of our Mishnah? Our Mishnah talked about the fact that you're not allowed to redeem people for too much money. Ah, but what was one of the exceptions? One of the exceptions was a, a, a very big Talmud Chacham, a big rabbi. Well, this is Rav Hutna. Rav Hutna was definitely forced into that category. So can these, these students, they, they, they wanted to go raise millions and millions of money to redeem Rav Hutna. So they went and asked who was the prominent posek, the prominent uh, adjudicator of halacha in America, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky said, you may not. Now, why may you not? So his reasoning is quite profound. Let me find... Let me just find exactly. Okay, the Batan Az Kenegdam Hagaya Yaakov Kamenetsi. So they went and Rav Yaakov Kamenetsi said, "Dein Acheshbon Azet Sodek." It's wrong to think that this is the same as the Mishnah. To call Hacht the Nam the Pidyon Shvuim later Ela Beshat Shalom. The whole Gomorrah is dealing with cases when we are living in peace. During the time of war, how on earth can you stop in the time of war to start worrying about redeeming captives? What are you doing? 
you're giving money to your enemy during battle, is you're going to help your enemy win the war. How can you do that? So you, if you give them money, what are you doing? You're helping them wage the war. And then he carries on to say that since, since the start of Israel, we have been in perpetual war with the Arabs. And so anytime you negotiate with the Arabs, what are you doing? You're strengthening their position in war. So how on earth can you do that? This is, this is war. And war has casualties. And casualties are sometimes on the battlefield and sometimes are once taken captive. But when you sign to go into the army, you say, and this is where it's based on the Rambam, you sign your life away to the state of Israel. And yes, Israel will do everything in its power to bring you back, except endanger itself. And you accept that because when you go into the army, you're serving the state. And everything needs to be done in order to make sure that the state is safe. And therefore, we cannot negotiate with terrorists and we will not give in to them because everything we do that will assist them, that will support them. So, let's go Gilad Shalit. So, we got back Gilad Shalit. Hamas got back a thousand plus terrorists. Who's happier? They're happier. Why? Because they've just, firstly, they've earned credibility in the eyes of the Arab world. They've earned credibility in the eyes of the Palestinian people. They've got a thousand extra foot soldiers to come. They've won. They've, they've, they've strengthened their position. What have we got? So possibly we've got morale. And, 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 and you can't discount that because one of the arguments saying is that if you are now an Israeli soldier and you know that you get taken captivity, you, you have in the back of your mind, they did have, Gilad Shalit was go back, you know, I know I'll go back. And when I go out to battle, I know that Israel will do everything in its power to get me back, like Rav Shaw Israeli said. But Rav Hutna and others and should know that this is the prominent Pesach that is, is issued in Israel, is you do not negotiate with terrorists. They were against negotiating the Gilad Shalit deal. Halachically, most of the rabbis were completely against it for this exact reason. When you are in war, you do not negotiate with terrorists. He says, ah, but, but don't we do everything for pikuach nefesh? Yes, we do on an individual level. But when it comes to the nation, when it comes to war, is a very different situation. And when it comes to war, we don't have the concept of pikuach nefesh. We never wage war on pikuach nefesh. We wage war to win the war. And winning the war means that if we have to sacrifice soldiers in order to win the war, that's what we do. That is the nature of war. And it's, it's ugly and it's unpleasant. And we think because we're dealing with hostage negotiation that somehow that this is different. This isn't different. This is war. And it would make no difference if it was a soldier um, and it even would make no difference if it was a civilian. So I'd like Rabbi Yashar Israeli, who says that the, he possibly would also agree in a case of a civilian. So, for example, the, the Munich Olympics, if, if we had the opportunity to get involved with that. So would, would we say that we, or in Tebi, can we, um, so we can go out to war for it, but will we negotiate with him? Will we give up terrorists for it? Is that, you know, even though these people haven't necessarily signed on, it, we, in the state of war, we have to accept the fact that unfortunately there are going to be casualties. And so those are the two, you know, the very prominent voices. Um, Rav Kamineski, that being said, was Rav Kamineski was in America. And um, American, American halacha, even though the Torah is the Torah is the Torah, um, the American situation and the Israeli situation often come to very different conclusions. And this is a, possibly one of those ex- exceptions. So Rav Hutna got back. Um, I don't exactly remember. I, I know they blew up. Um, I, I don't think Israel was involved in the negotiation. I think it was America. 
but one way or another, Maravutna got back, and uh, that that story ended in the way it ended. Gilad Shalit, we know how that story ended. Um, whether you agree or disagree, there's no question that everybody, regardless of what you paskened, everyone was very happy for um, Gilad Shalit and for his family. Um, but not everyone felt that it was right. And I suppose the question which often comes is, what happens if you know if it's it's personal to people? It was, you know, I, I can sit here and have the psak, but what happens if it was me, if it was my children? Would I be so, uh, you know, dominant like, a Rav, you know, Rav, um, Rav Kamenetsky or, or the other post scheme? Would I, would I say something like, we can't negotiate, that's just, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the greater good of the state of Israel outweighs the, the individual. It's, uh, it's very hard. It's very hard. It's a very hard psak to give. But these are difficult questions. Anyway, so that, uh, those are the, the arguments. Um, you can sit wherever you may, but uh, to that end, I will invite everybody, if you would like to ask any questions, to please unmute yourself. You can now unmute yourself, and happy to take any questions, and thank you for your attention. Any questions? Going. Going. Gone. All right, everybody. Well, thank you very much. Uh, no questions, but thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been wonderful. Week one of two-week lockdown. Um, I've, I've enjoyed uh, every this week. Um, a lot more to come next week. I um, hope you have a wonderful Shabbat. It's going to be a little bit quieter this Shabbat than normal. But um, look forward to seeing you in the upcoming week. Shabbat Shabbat.